to the Eric Metaxas Show with your host, Eric Metaxas. Hey there, folks. Uh, I uh, have a special guest today. Uh, we've had her on, not particularly recently, but when her book, uh, The Diversity Delusion, came out. Uh, her name is Heather McDonald. Uh, she's the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. And I know you were wondering, who is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. It's got to be somebody. Well, now you know. It's Heather McDonald. She's a contributing editor of City Journal, recipient of the 2005 Bradley Prize. She's Her work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal and all those places, and she's right here now. Heather McDonald, welcome. It's always great to be with you here well, and now. You're, you're fun to talk to, and you've recently written a couple of pieces uh, at uh, for the City Journal that I thought we really should talk about them. I'd love to have you on to talk about them, and thanks for, for coming by. Um, which should we talk about first? I think the one about the museums, uh, if you... Sure, we can, what, talk what about, is, we can talk about white culling at the Art Institute of Chicago. What? White culling. White Whites are being culling. culled, yes, yes. Uh, this is a sort of one of the more explicit... Uh, manifestations of the cultural moment we're in with Black Lives Matter, the accusation that Western civilization is culpably white. The Art Institute of Chicago decided to terminate all of its docents uh, for the one reason that they were white. Uh, and, and as such, they were seen as inappropriate to teach Chicago school children about the wonders of this extraordinary art collection. Or Put it another way, Whitey needs to shut up more. <laughs> exactly. I mean, really, like when I hear this stuff, you know, because I, 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 I think I, I preserve what mental sanity I still have by looking away from many of these things because they're so horrifying. But no. this, it, 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 it is astonishing. So it, so the, so the larger theme of the, uh, the piece that you wrote at City Journal uh, is. Is the art world museums have uh, they've taken in they've they've drunk the cultural Marxist Kool Aid? Yep. Um, but you you provide specifics. So what do you remember the title of this particular piece? Uh, the art uh, boy, I don't actually. So um, your answer would be no. <laughs> the answer would be no. Uh, listen, I spend my time writing the piece. I don't I don't worry about the title. Uh, you can look it up on the web. It's it, the uh, art. Yeah. Look it. Look it up at City Journal, Heather McDonald Art Institute of Chicago, and maybe your producer can find it in your ear. But uh, it's it is absolutely what you say, Eric. Our museums, our greatest museums, have now declared themselves anti-racist institutions. They've put aside the the traditional uh, uplifting and ennobling agenda of preserving the greatest works of Western civilization, curating them, explaining them, passing them on to the new generations. Now they're in the business of fighting what is, in fact, phantom racism. And that phantom racism. Phantom. It is I think you're phantom. probably a racist for even <laughs> using the term phantom racism. Listen, that's a beautiful term. Did you coin that term? Yes. Okay. I, it's, it's, phantom it's racism is beautiful because that's exactly what it is. And I've been, uh, you know, stumbling around looking for the term now. Uh, thanks to you, I have it. It's called phantom racism. It's not actual racism, but uh, they pretend that it is. It's like a phantom limb. You can feel it twinging, even though it's not there, even though they cut it off weeks ago. So 
you do you focus specifically um, on the University of of Chicago? Or I'm sorry, the Art Institute, Art Institute of, Chicago, of Chicago. Or do you talk about other institutions in the piece? This uh, touches briefly on the Metropolitan Museum. I did a follow-up about the Metropolitan Museum's own even more absurd double standards towards art, towards Western, towards non-Western art. But the Art Institute Chicago traces the history of this of this institution. And it's also, we're turning on volunteerism. We're turning on philanthropy, which are... You mean turning against? Turning against, turning on them, right. Because they, too, traditionally, demographically, inevitably, have been historically white. So what? You know, nobody complains that... African art or institutions are historically black or Chinese institutions and art is historically Chinese. Only Western civilization is canceling itself because of its demographic history. Uh, And so you have people like docents who are highly educated. This is an extraordinarily rigorous program to be trained as an art institute docent. For my audience to explain what, what a docent is at the University, uh, sorry, at the Institute of uh, Art, art Institute, Institute of Chicago. Chicago. What, what is that, a docent? A docent. There's docents in museums across the country, and they're being, many of them are being culled because they're white. Uh, culled? It's a, you don't mean like murdered, but you mean driven symbolically. out. Told, yeah. You don't come the back. They were, the, the docents at Chicago were told, clean out your lockers. We'll give you, as a consolation prize, a two-year membership in the Art Institute of Chicago. These are women who spent two years training what is basically a, a Museum of Fine Arts degree, learning the collection, learning art history. A docent is a volunteer educator. A docent is donating his time to the museum uh, to try and share his enthusiasm for art. So the Art Institute of Chicago, which like every institution today is claiming, oh, we need more money, we need more money, you know, COVID hurt us, please government give us more money, is getting rid of 100 volunteer educators and replacing them with six part-time paid educators who will be chosen not because they know art, but because they understand anti-racist education. All right. This is the time. And this is the the moment of the program where I say, shoot me now. (laughs) I just wanted to get out of the way early. But uh, when I get that look on my face, you'll understand what I'm thinking about. So these genuinely wonderful people, people who have chosen to do this beautiful thing. Yes. To volunteer, to spread the arts, whatever. They uh, have been sent packing because they're white. Because they're white. That's that's the only explanation. Also, they would the art the director of the Art Institute, James Rondeau, who is a curator of contemporary art. He came in. I have quotes from him in this piece that are beyond belief. The guy is he sounds like a pothead. I'm not saying he is a pothead, but if you read the transcription of these passages from a speech he gave in Iowa, the guy is incoherent. He has also apologized for the frieze that runs around the top of this great neoclassical Beaux-Arts building, listing some of the 36 greatest artists in Western history, from, from Praxiteles in Greek times to Giotto to Michelangelo to da Vinci. Uh, da Vinci, just got another to, white guy. Come exactly. On. That's the problem. That's the problem. He says the, the entablature is unacceptable in the context of today. So, whoa, 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 whoa. That's <laughs> hilarious. That's, cla- that's a lapidary phrase. Yes. The entablature 
is unacceptable. Unacceptable. Yes. In today's context, it's an unacceptable formulation. These were the the Institute's founders in 1887. They aspired to create a a a tabernacle to beauty. And they they got together their list of what they thought were some of the greatest arts. Some of these artists they already possessed, Rembrandt, Vermeer, uh, Halls, others they aspired to collect. And they put them on the wall. There is a Japanese, a ninth century Japanese court painter, but he doesn't, he also has to be excised somehow because it's guilt by association. Anyway, so this is what's going on more broadly, is turning on collections themselves for the one reason that they are of the wrong melanin. Okay, we know this is utterly idiotic. Idiotic is almost a, a kind word. It's, it's more, more in the realm of evil. So the yes. question is, um, h- how did this happen? How is it possible that places like this, which we would think would have some vocabulary for thinking about things like beauty, would, would throw those ideas uh, under the proverbial bus. Right. How? Right. Exactly. Uh, I, let me just re-describe it. Let me, let me reassert what you're saying. What has been breaking my heart for the last two years, uh, and I've traced this in classical music as well, is the betrayal of the guardians. These are people who have been given the greatest privilege one could have in humanity, which is to curate these works. Okay. And they will not defend them against the mob. Forgive me, going to a break, we'll be right back with Heather McDonald. Welcome back. I'm talking to Heather McDonald, uh, who's with the Manhattan Institute and has written some pieces at the City Journal. We're talking about um, the issue of the arts, the Institute, uh, the Art Institute of Chicago. And what you said, what what bothers you is that the people who are guardians of these things, that their whole job, their their whole uh, raison d'etre. Forgive me for using a white French term. (laughs) I apologize. But that, that, they, that they have abdicated exactly. their role. Exactly. So why? Why? Because they're cowards, because they, they do not want to stand up against the mob. They want to be accepted by the New York Times to get Holland Carter, the New York Times art critic, to write a, a uh, you know, slavish appreciation of their anti-racist stance. And I guess they simply uh, maybe come up, came up during a time when this poison was already infecting the academy, and they've just absorbed it. But I can't really explain it, because I know that if I were in that situation and had the slightest understanding of the greatness that I was being asked merely to celebrate, merely to, under, to understand and to teach young people why they should be in their, down on their knees in gratitude for I would stand up and say, I am not going to accept these phony charges of racism. But they don't. They embrace it. Uh, you'd have to ask them. I mean, it, it, is, it is one of the puzzles of our time of why we are so cowardly. Well, I guess I'm not um, 
in some ways I'm puzzled and in some ways I'm not. I always think about, you know, 1968 and I think about how the leaders of places like Columbia University right. Cornell. really bowed down mm-hmm. to, what is it? It's like a Rousseauian idea. I mean, it's certainly an anti-biblical, anti-Western idea yeah. that, um, that the older you are, the more wisdom you have, that young people should respect their elders. They <laughs> bowed down to the idea that uh, if you're young, you are innocent and you have something, quote unquote, something to teach us. Yes. We really haven't moved very far. It's, it's over 50 years ago, but it's the same True. concept. It's, it's that those guardians, the president of Columbia University and on and on and on. It happened at Yale, uh, where we both went a little later than that. But I mean, they bought into an idea. This is over 50 years ago, and it's the same idea. They don't have what somebody called cultural confidence. They're mm-hmm. afraid, right. in a way, of these angry young people coming after them. And this, so they go, yeah, 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 we, we agree. So, I mean, it's like a parent abdicating the role of parent. It, it, you don't want to be the bad guy. So we're stuck in this, it's like 60s adolescence, basically. I could not agree more. And I think it's partly, if, you, if we want to go back to root causes, we see in the 50s, capitalism was so powerful it, it created such un, unheard of, unimagined wealth that for the first time in human history, adolescents had spending power. Their parents had so much disposable income that they could give them, the, the, the teenagers now could buy things on their own. And so you then had the creation from these entrepreneurial corporations of youth culture. And, and you had a separate source of authority where young people were themselves consumers, and that started to give them this power. And from then on, you had the glorification of youth culture because it's a massive new market with the baby boomers. And, and we've never looked back. And I, you know, you, I remember in the 90s, you remember these articles probably, Eric, of professors saying, oh, where are the protests? You know, we want students to protest. Well, we certainly got them in the 2000 to 2010 with, with these cultural revolution, shaming, screaming, hysterical fits directed at professors like Nicholas Christiakis at Yale, Brett Weinstein at Evergreen uh, State University. Uh, and, and so once again, these idiots, these ignorant adolescents are in the saddle and the, and the adults are kowtowing before but them. But it reminds me of, of uh, you know, Mao's cultural revolution. Yeah. There's something, you know, I know you, you're not a woman of faith, but I can't help but see it as anything other than uh, demonic. There's something so wicked mm-hmm. about angry young people given power uh, and you know, it, it's, it is the mob. It's fueled the mob, uh, you know, from, from whatever, from the French Revolution onward. And there's something about it that is just horrifying. It's not just wrong. It's right. more than wrong. It's right. really wicked somehow. And when you talk about the Christakis, I mean, that video. Yeah. Um, I, I still am amazed. I thought to myself, in a rational world, People who talk that way yes. to those uh, ostensibly in authority over them, you get expelled. Yes. Like yesterday. Yes. So, again, we talked about <laughs> Columbia, you know, university uh, in the late 60s. Now we're talking about Yale more recently. But this is this is a standard thing. I and, know. and how far does it go before... There's nothing left. I mean, I just don't know. When you talk about places like the, the Institute of uh, Art Institute of Chicago, 
I mean, they can't really survive very long. They're eating themselves. Yeah, and I would just add, and, and your, your viewers, Eric, can look up this video. I mean, type, look for Nicholas Christakis, Christiakis at Yale and the student mob. It is truly shocking. And, and yes, one analogizes it to the Chinese Cultural Revolution, but there's one difference where the Chinese Cultural Revolution was by and large the sort of masses turning on the elites. The, the professors were being hounded out. Uh, and uh, it was hatred of China's traditional meritocratic, uh, Confucian, aristocratic society. America today, it's the elites turning on themselves. Yes, and, and of course, Yale conferred two racial justice prizes on two of the most egregious of those student hyenas that were literally cursing, using four-letter words, against this highly respected professor. Yale honored them. And by and large, you have the James Rondos, the director of the Art Institute of Chicago, the Max Holings, the director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They are self-annihilating. It's not always the pitchfork masses coming to get them. They're initiating this activity. And that separates this from the mob, from the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Where it ends up, every single day, there's another institution going down. Uh, I, I, you know, it, it's hard to predict where it's going to go. Right now you have uh, classical musicians being canceled because they will not explicitly denounce Putin. Classical music has been has been in this paroxysm of guilt for its historical demographics. Uh, what's left? I don't know. The family's already gone. So it, I, I think it's up to parents at this point. The only hope is parents start to take control of their education, read books to your children, read the classics, read the British classics to them, fill their heads with beauty before the poison can get in. That's good. Fill their heads with beauty before the poison can get in. A little beauty as a, as a prophylaxis against the poison. Exactly. Um, it really is, is interesting because... Um, you know, these ideas that we're, we're talking about, uh, there's – in some ways, there's nothing new, right? I mean, when you t- – the only difference what you're describing is that the elites turning on themselves. What is it or what do you think it is in Western culture, late, late Western culture that, that leads to this? I mean, is it a simple issue of like the, you know, the, the Romans, once you become comfortable and wealthy, you lose – I don't know, the eye of the tiger, whatever, whatever term it is that gives you the ability uh, to see things that makes you relax and let the, uh, the, the vandals and Visigoths in. I mean, that seems to me uh, some kind of a parallel. I'm going to go into very uncomfortable territory here, Eric, and I'm going to I want to give a, a trigger warning. Uh, I'm going to talk here about averages, not individuals. Uh, and and I, I think it is something specific to the American context, though this poison is spreading into all of the West. I think what's going on, as, as I observe things in America, is a lot of it is driven by the problem of race, frankly. And uh, it, again, these are difficult things to talk about, but there are racial inequalities have endured beyond the time of widespread discrimination. This is where we started 
phantom racism. Racism does not characterize American society today, just the opposite. We are, there's not a single American institution that is not twisting itself into knots to hire and promote as many blacks as possible. Anyone who works in a corporation knows this. If you've been through a promotion committee well, meeting, look, you know, if you've been to a university, you know that the name of the game in hiring is to try and bring in blacks. But despite this lack of discrimination, there's still these persistent well, racial gaps. There are like three things going going on at once here, and I want to I want to make sure we don't get confused. First of all, uh, in your book, The Diversity Delusion, you, you talk about this. It's not only a racial thing. It's kind of, um, okay, we're going to a break. We'll be right back, and I will end, uh, or I will try to complete that sentence. <laughs> but I can tell by your trembling smile You're seeing way too much in Talking to Heather McDonald, uh, who has a number of uh, pieces at the City Journal. I think this new, well, the one we're discussing is titled March of the Revisionists, just in time for March. And, um, well, <laughs> March Madness. we're talking about March Madness, yes. We're, t- we're talking about um, a number of things, but it strikes me that the obsession with race, what you call phantom racism, right? There's something deeper there. In other words, when, when, when we're talking about this, it's almost like, I mean, I, I guess the way I process it is I, I just think it's, it's cultural Marxism. It's the idea that we have to divide. We have to work against everything that, um, you know, those guys believe in. So the family, the church, uh, local government, beauty, uh, it, it, everything has to be undermined. So however you do it, critical race theory, uh, deconstruction, I, I think most people doing it aren't even aware of, of I mean, I mean w- when I was at Yale in the 80s, I, you know, a working class kid shows up at a place like that and suddenly I'm introduced to this stuff and I just thought, what in the world, what is this? I had no idea. But it seems to me that it's um, maybe the the way I I'm I'm just trying to make sense of this, but I process it as it's emotionalism. It's, it's, it's the idea, maybe it goes back to Rousseau, this idea that you grab onto a feeling and you say the facts be damned. I don't care what the facts are. I'm angry. I feel uh, harmed, discriminated against. Somebody looked at me funny. Somebody said something that I took in a funny way. And I have the right somehow, I don't know who's given me the right, but I have the right to use this as a cudgel and... I, so it's it, it's 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 many things, and so that's why it's uh, yeah, fun Eric, to explore I, with I, you. I I respect your desire to want to broaden this out, and I think that's perfectly valid. And I think the connections you make are valid too. All I can say is observing what is going on. I can tell you that 
institution after institution, standard after standard is being torn down because of the concept of disparate impact. There's not a single academic standard, meritocratic standard, that doesn't have a disparate impact on blacks because of the academic skills gap. The average black 12th grader reads at the level of the average white 8th grader. 54% of black 8th graders do not even possess partial mastery of the most basic math skills. That would, doesn't go would on. this have been and true in the crime, 30s and the crime, 40s and let the me 50s? Just, let me just finish criminal justice system, the reason that prosecutors are not prosecuting crime, the reason we are depolicing, decriminalizing, deincarcerating, is because criminal laws have a disparate impact on blacks. We will not get out of our situation. You may be right about a broader cultural Marxism, but I can tell you, unless there's an alternative explanation to racism for ongoing racial disparities, the left wins. It is going to continue tearing down STEM standards. In STEM fields now, you have getting rid of the graduate record exams. You have getting rid of physics requirements. For one reason, those academic standards have a disparate impact on blacks. We are getting rid of laws against turnstile jumping and theft because they have a disparate impact on blacks. We have to be able to talk about behavior, academic skills gap, and culture. And my, my question is, okay, l- let's say that's true. You'd have to say, well, where did you get the idea that any of this matters? That it, it is what it is? This is reality? In other words, the idea... We are that guilty we about our al- past. We, well, are, we are understandably guilty about okay, our past. But that's, to me, that's and the, the point. And the whites, the whites, right. Right. But that's the point. In other words, Have at what given point- up on the hope that the academic, that this, the, they've given up, they are terrified that the racial socioeconomic gaps are not going to close. And so they are preemptively saying the only allowable explanation for those gaps is okay. racism. Okay. Wow. Ah, this is such tough stuff. Okay. So that's the piece. That's the piece <laughs> about, well, we were talking about the piece that started out with the museum's March of the Revisionists. You also wrote a piece about January 6th. So t- tell us about that. Well, I, I think that it is another example of one of these phantom narratives that the left is working with, that somehow what was truly a deplorable activity should not be repeated as a, as a very bad precedent. Nevertheless, the left is determined to see this as part of some grand white supremacist threat to, to uh, the United States, which is another phantom uh, narrative that's going on, and they have exploited January 6th in order to increase the security state. We have the absurd idea coming out of the FBI and the Justice Department that the biggest threat to this country is white supremacy. No, I'm sorry. The biggest can, threat is urban anarchy. Can we, can we even imagine that there are people who obviously genuinely believe that white supremacy is any kind of a threat, much much less the, the biggest threat. It's madness. Right. I mean, I would go much farther on January 6th. I, I think that what what uh, folks like you and, and Ted Cruz describe as really horrible, d- it didn't even happen. In other words, what, what happened, whatever bad things happened, we will all condemn. But even that has been exaggerated. I, uh, I know that uh, there were deep state actors playing games just like the the Governor Whitmer kidnapping thing. There's weird stuff going on. Nobody is even talking about that. They are just, as you say, just kind of demonizing wide swaths 
of uh, the American population. And they're so fixated on that that I don't know that we'll ever find out what actually happened, you know, so that we can know and condemn the bad things because we're too busy throwing everyone in jail who were who were there. They dared to, to show up. Uh, we'll be right back talking to Heather McDonald. Don't go away. I tell you, chum, it's time to come blow your horn. The taller the tree is, the sweeter the Welcome back. I'm talking to Heather McDonald, who has written a lot of stuff for City Journal. Um, okay, so the piece we're talking about now is the January 6th piece called Insurrections and Double Standards. So it's the same theme, Heather. There's this kind of woke narrative, and the only problem is it's become weaponized. You have the United States government mm-hmm. throwing people in jail. I mean, this really... It sickens me because I've, I've had some of those people on this program, and to hear their stories, I, I can't believe – I mean, you know, there's levels of injustice. It's, it's yeah. one thing for some uh, educated uh, suburban uh, housewife who's a docent uh, at the Art Institute of Chicago to be sent packing. Like, that's bad. Yeah. But to have people ha- – have their doors broken down, to be arrested and humiliated because they dared to show up. Uh, at the nation's capital, they didn't break anything. They didn't kill anyone. They didn't strike anyone. Um, and so there's this narrative. And again, the worst part of it for me is that you're told, don't talk about it. Don't dare talk about it because you need to show that you're on board with this narrative. And if you don't show that you're on board with this narrative, you're probably part of the problem. Right. Well, on the one hand, I'm not going to like go immediately to, well, there were agents provocateurs. I think there is, I believe, in personal responsibility. And if you were trespassing, if you were uh, vandalizing, you absolutely should be held accountable. That having been said, though, Eric. By the way, I'm against vandalism. Just, okay, just so, to be perfectly so let's clear. Just, let's just be perfectly clear. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there were actions that day that should not be repeated. Correct. And, and if this becomes the norm... If you believe rightly or wrongly that an election was rigged, right. uh, you should not. That does not entitle right. you to do this. But Correct. I will. I will say this: you don't know when we pull the emergency cord, because you're absolutely right. There is a double standard here in the way these people have been treated compared to the Black Lives Matter rioters, and. I've just read, believe it or not, for the first time, 1984. It, it terrifies me. It's part of my reading of, you know, Gulag Archipelago, narratives of Soviet totalitarianism. The thought of a government that has you have no hope for justice, you the, the very instruments and institutions of justice are biased. The great human yearning is the possibility of an impartial hearing, a tribunal that you can come, that you can tell the facts and get an impartial hearing. If we've lost that, it is all over. And so when do you start crying to the rafters and what can we do about it? I don't know. But it is very, very worrisome if you have a government 
in its Justice Department that is committed to one particular way of seeing the world. And, and we saw this. I mean, one thing I wrote about in this article was in the year leading up to the anniversary of January 6th, you had story after story of, they're coming again. You know, August, there's going to be another riot. February, there's going to be another riot. The ICE was putting out these bulletins. The white supremacists are, are, are rising up again. This yearning on the part of, of the Biden administration and the cultural elites to have another instantiation of their myth of white supremacy was pathetic. And, you know, they, you could tell on the actual day itself of January 7th, the big, there were very long faces because there hadn't been another riot. Uh, but they'll, they'll operate in the absence of confirming facts. So what happens if we really lose confidence in our ability to get a fair hearing before a judge? You know, Biden announced that he was going to not even put his judicial nominees before the ABA for evaluation because he said the ABA doesn't appreciate diversity enough. Are you kidding me? The American Bar Association is one of the left wing of institutions. It is obsessed with diversity. Biden was basically saying my my judicial nominees are going to be of such low caliber chosen on race and sex grounds alone that they won't even pass muster with the ABA. Okay, so the question is... Worry about our are, judiciary. Are there enough... Um Republicans um, to stand against this, or are they just going to, you know, go, go along with it? I mean, I, 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 it just strikes me that this is a war on the foundations of America. This is the, these are the basics are at stake, and we have people in Congress and in the in the Senate who they're Republicans, but they don't. They're part of the problem because they they right. play patty cake with evil. Well, I would say again, this gets back to our. One of our disagreements and where we started out from, uh, we have to be able to say Western civilization is not culpable. And again, this is where it gets uncomfortable. We accept lying down that, that the New York Times can can use white as an epithet. All it needs to do to discredit an individual or an institution is to append white as an adjective before it. So a white police officer, a white CEO, a white publisher, all guilty, a white institution, all guilty. We have to be willing to say whiteness is not a crime. It is not signal original sin and and name what is happening because white culling is going on. Culling. White culling is going on. The, it, this happened in Britain. Musicians were fired because they were white from the English touring opera. This is going on again and again. I don't want to play white identity politics, but I am going to say that the war on a civilization deemed too white and too male must be fought back because it is a universal civilization. The left is poaching on our ideas, on the, uh, the, the ideas of the West. Yeah. Tolerance, fr- equality, fairness, opportunity, these equal justice before the law, due process. These are uniquely Western ideas that came out of a European tradition that, yes, happened to be white. We have nothing at this point left to apologize for. And it's it's also uh, these are biblical ideas and you have cultural Marxist atheists building uh, a Tower of Babel in a sense trying to I mean, it's the same utopianist stuff over and over and over again. We want to reach uh, heaven on our own strength. We cancel the idea of God and all of the good stuff that you get from the West, uh, from 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 European 
Christendom, you, you, you take what you like, but then you, you, you cut off the roots. I mean, it's a project that is bound to fail. The only question is how. Well, it fails if people have the, the if they're so cowardly that they are not willing to stand up to patently false charges, whether it's racism, sexism, oppression. Uh, and, and you have to be able to believe in the facts that a man is different from a woman. Uh, you cannot simply will yourself to I can't believe you said different. that on this program. Albin, we'll edit that out. <laughs> Thank Please, you. Thank edit you. that Don't out. Save me from myself. Thank you. <laughs> Heather, look, uh, it's just a joy to have you. I'm sorry our time is short. We'll just have you back oh, to continue the conversation because, uh, because I want to. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. If not for you.